Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at University of Exeter in the UK, and we're talking to Jeremy about his new book, A History of the 20th Century Conflict, Technology and Rock and Roll, just published by Arcturus. 2020. Jeremy, many congratulations on this book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Crawford. It's great to have you here today. Before we talk about the book and maybe about the sequence of books of which it's a part, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing career, your teaching career up to this point? Yes, um, I was, I'm a Londoner. I went to University of Cambridge and then at Oxford. I was hired at Durham in 1980 as a lecturer, or the lecturer in early modern European history. I made senior lecturer in 90, reader in 91, professor in, I think it was 93. Uh, moved to the established chair, that's the seniors chair at Exeter in 96, and retired from that last year. And I have a wide ranging interest both in teaching and um research and publication and I've published very widely indeed and I deliberately try and rethink questions. I'm not somebody who essentially uh, delights in writing footnotes on other people's work. Mm. One of the great pleasures of reading your work Jeremy is that it's always new, it's always offering new ideas, new opinions, new structures, new arguments, new new questions for investigation and that this new book A History of the 20th Century Conflict Technology and Rock and Roll it's part of a sequence of books that you've published with Arcturus, isn't it? Yes, it's the third. I did one on a history of the world, and I did one on a history of Europe. And um, a book of this type, which is, you know, extensively illustrated, you do need to uh, have a publisher that's willing to, you know, take a proactive role on the illustrations. I mean, obviously, I suggested the illustrations and I captured them, captioned them, but you need somebody else uh, to go around and negotiate the picture rights and to arrange that the pictures are delivered in the, uh, in the um, um, as it were, the quality that's required. So to that extent, it's a collaborative work. And I'd like to pay tribute to a person who has publishers, who is John Turing. And, I, you know, he's been a great pleasure to work with and... I think that the the quality of the reproduction of the of the illustrations. I mean, you know, you can blame me for the choice of the illustrations, but the quality of the reproduction, I think, is really quite outstanding. No, it really is, and I mean, it, it's a it's a book that, in the best possible way, looks like a magazine, except it's two hundred and fifty plus pages long and and, and full of you know d- detail to die for. But but the, the picture quality is really exceptional. One of the questions I wanted to ask you today was how the picture selection and, if you like, the theme selection worked. But it's helpful to know that you chose the pictures and, and worked everything together simultaneously. Yes. I mean, what you have to do with a illustrated book is that you have to provide a picture list that is longer than those that is going to be used because you cannot determine in advance the cost and availability of particular images. So the very first picture book I did uh, was 1994 
and that was an illustrated history of England for the publisher Bison. And I remember that the contract specified, I think it was 300 illustrations that I had to choose and explain where they could find them. In other words, if you choose a painting, you have to say where it is. Um, but that was more than was actually required because clearly there was not going to be possible to get them all in at the price that was required. At that stage, they were willing to pay only £30 a reproduction right and obviously any painting that or picture that was going to charge more than £30 so you do have to be flexible. And as you may know, I've done quite a lot of map books with, um, not with Bloomsbury, for example, in its various iterations. And again, you have a thing. You, you suggest uh, illustrations and then, um, I mean, these were originals, and then you have out whether the archive is willing to have that that map photographed uh, and then secondly what it's going to cost for it so you have to then be willing for them to and then and then to be frank the publisher comes back to you and says look we've got a um, you know a sort of copy of that um as a, as a rough draft copy uh, quite frankly afford it but we don't like the thing it, we don't think it's visually attractive enough uh, suggest something else on the you know, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's proper. Publishers should take a proactive role. And my very last uh, book on uh, maps to just come out, which was the end of last year, World War Two in 100 Maps. Now, there, most of the maps came from the British Library, which is the publisher. But I had to produce a uh, list because, A, we wanted some books from maps from elsewhere. But, B, even with the BL ones, you've got to deal with the question, even if the cost is found, the question, again, is of reproduction quality. And then when you look at it, whether, in fact, you know, on the page it were the text you want to attach to it. Hmm. Well, I must say the actors have done a first-class job in working these images through the book and and. They really do bring this book to life uh, in a really compelling way. Jeremy, you're a regular guest on the New Books Network, but the last time that I spoke to you, we were talking about George III and your recent um, Penguin um, short biography of, of his life. A, a, a biography brings its own shape to a book, doesn't it? But something like a history of the 20th century seems much harder to pin down in terms of meaning or in terms of, of dominant themes. How do you approach a project like this, a history of the 20th century? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, I'd like to answer that by saying I'm a bit difficult. You know, there is a standard pat approach that you would do, very much focused on a standard run of topics. But A, I don't believe uh, in the standard approach. I always think you should re-examine things. B, I don't like writing a book unless I've got something new to say. And C, I've always been a world historian. I differentiate that very clearly. I've always been a world historian. I, in the mid-90s, for example, I brought out with Yale, War in the World, etc. But I am not one of those who is foolish enough to think that being a world historian means that you're in some way a decolonizer. I mean, I think in many senses, the soap colonizing movement which is so strong at the present moment in Britain and the United States is in fact very um, Eurocentric and American centric because it's all about some anxiety 
homophobias and sort of self-love hatred of commentators in those countries. I mean, what I'm trying to do um, when I'm doing world history is genuinely to move away um, as it were, Western paradigms of analysis. And so for the 20th century, as you know, if you've read the book, um, I, I, you know, I start off by arguing that the principal drive of change is the unprecedented uh, rise in the world population from which I think very many things come. Um, so, you know, I'm not writing about something, some chat called Edwardian triumph or whatever like that or Edward and you know once I move on to looking at the uh, the uh, sections in chronological order you know I'm trying to look at things and topics to do with development uh, which is not simply you know the 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 standard approach, you know, and I think it's important that one gives due weight, for example, to China, which I try and in each and every section of the book, I try and give more weight than you would ordinarily give to Latin America. So for me, one of the more interesting things that was before World War One are the Mexican Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. I think these are really very important. They're more important than some of the you know, standard things that you might get in such a book. Hmm. Now, the subtitles uh, that appear in the published version, Conflict, Technology and Rock and Roll, uh, are fascinating. Conflict and technology, obviously things that we would immediately associate with your writing to date. Rock and roll, perhaps, I haven't read as much Jeremy Black as I ought to have done, but it wouldn't be a theme that I would immediately associate with your name. Did, did you choose those three subtitle themes, Jeremy? Well, the third one could have been slightly different, but the point was there are sections on what, what I call new trends, and I, quite, I like to look there much more at popular culture. So, you know, there's things like the world of Bond, for example, and the, it's deliberately done that in order to, you know, in order to try and remind us of the some of the major uh, transnational uh, cultural movements of the past. Now, some of those transnational movements were genuinely global. Some of them were more restricted. But I don't think that you could happily write a uh, history of the 20th century or pop music or discussing the rise of the cinema or the role of radio, the impact of television, etc., etc. Um, and to that extent, it would have been mis misguided if I'd put it as culture, the third one. This culture would rather have suggested that I should have been looking at Arnold Schoenberg or Benjamin Britten. And while they, you know, may well be important, I don't think they are as significant as the uh, more general popular culture that I'm talking about. Mm. One day when we get to meet up, we might have a chat about what your favourite rock and roll music is. Uh, but for, for now, I, I love rock. I love rock around the clock. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Do you? I, I, do you, you like you like vintage sounds? Do you? So you're getting cut off every so often. Sorry, I was just asking, you like vintage sounds? Yes, I like vintage sounds. Good. Well, when you're when you're working through a sort of mega topic like this, how how would you avoid moving in a sort of straightforward chrono, chronicle type uh, narrative? How how do you how do you really prioritize interpretation and analysis in this kind of work? 
Well, usually if you're doing a book type, what you're doing is because the way it generally works is that they can only go ahead if they've been pre-sold on co-publication deals, is that you would have produced a template. That template would have been agreed with the publisher, so you go backwards and forwards on that. They will then have taken that to a number of uh, other publishers, classically at the Frankfurt Book Fair, but not just there. And that will then be agreed, and that then acts as your model when you're writing. Now, you can deviate from it, either by being cussed. I prefer not to be cussed. I prefer to I've decided that such and such a section isn't going to work or that I've got something more interesting to say about that. What do you think? Uh, and they might say to me, well, write a thousand words and let us see what, you know, what that looks like. But ordinarily, you have a template to write to. So the question rather is, how do you draw up the template? And there, to a great extent, you know, <laughs> I mean, I just sit down and think about it and... Um, you know, I sort of produce what seems to me to be pertinent and, and significant. I mean, you know, for good or ill, the book does have my name on it. So, mm. I mean, you, you know, so it seems reasonable that it should represent what I think are significant and interesting topics in that period. Um, and, you know, those are, those, I mean, some of them obviously suggest themselves, you know, the, for example, you know, the fate of the Soviet Union. Well, that's not difficult. But, you know, I've got immediately after that, I've got four paragraphs on, uh, on the end of history, question mark. Um, in other words, is it sensible when, you know, space is at an enormous premium in a book of this type to discuss uh, Fukuyama and, uh, and his notion? And I thought, yes, well, there could be something that was interesting to say at that point, including about why that argument was made and, you know, what we can then think about in terms of the 1990s. So I also have a brief uh, box on, on Huntingdon for the same reason, because they were influential writers of the 1990s. But, you know, when you then go up to, for example, have a, you know, a section for that period on social trends, it's entirely up to you whether you talk, as I do, about family structure, which I talk about, or rising divorce figures, which I talk about, or income inequality, which I talk about. And ultimately, um, you know, it's it's up to you. I mean, I've got a section in there on gated communities because I think that's an interesting aspect of modern life. I've also got a section on continued slavery because I think it's very interesting to see how slavery exists in the modern world and you know, what what one can make of that. Yeah. And then again, you've got your choice. I mean, you know, for the end of the century, I have a section on cinema. Well, what does one off with I chose to start off with Independence Day because I think it's interesting in what it talks about in terms of the notion of um, a the continued uh, dominance despite the rise of Mumbai the continued dominance of California but b also this fascination with potent aliens mm. and of course all that's wrapped up in a end of Cold War narrative with examples that include obese pets and and other telling uh, m micro situations that explain modern life. Well, you, you mentioned earlier on that the book's opening sequence begins with this description of rising population numbers. Do you think, 
had those population numbers been accurately projected at the start of the 20th century, that the mega trends of the 20th century could have been anticipated? Well, I think that's really interesting. I mean, my own view is that they represent a dystopia. And I mean, I think it's quite interesting. Yet again, today, an enormous report has come out on the environment, on how human beings are damaging the environment. And, you know, you've got some distinguished economists saying we've got to rethink, you know, uh, economic measures. And, you know, basically, it's a critique of capitalism. Well, you know, that's a point of view it's worth that the real damage to the environment comes around from rapidly increasing numbers of people and that talking about uh, redistributing or attacking capitalism is meaningless unless you're actually going to address uh, that issue and its consequences but of course people don't want to do that now going back to the early 20th century um there were who were aware about the strain and problems that were likely to arise through rising population. But remember, um, that growth is largely one of the second half of the century, uh, as I as I make clear. I mean, so, you know, you've got 1.6 billion in 1900. You've got 2.55 billion in uh, 1950. So that's less than twice. Okay, between 1950 at uh, 2.55 billion and 1999 at 6 billion, it's not only more than doubled, the actual increase is significantly greater. So the first period, uh, you've got an increase of roughly just under a billion. Uh, The second half of the century, you've got an increase of roughly um, three and a half billion. So that is a significant change. And I don't think necessarily that people had thought their way through. And, you you know, you've got issues such as antibiotics, you've got the Green Revolution, you've got the extent to which um, uh, international trade uh, and, uh, you know, increased the possibility of areas uh, participating in the global economy. You've got the extent to which more um, sort of pro-economic, pro-capitalist policies were followed in a number of areas, ensuring that people being in misery, there were opportunities for those of enterprise to create benefit for all. Um, so none of that was necessarily predictable. Um, and you know, my own personal view is that one should, if one was, you know, I tried to encourage the publisher. I don't think the books sell very well these days, so they're not a, got a sequel. But I said to them, I'd quite like as a sequel to do one on the 21st century. We're already a fifth of the way through it, slightly over. And I think, again, the rise of the population is the drive, uh, dominant drive, which is why it is so ironic, of course, uh, that everybody is so obsessed with COVID at the present moment, which in demographic terms is, you know, is a nothing. Hmm. I, I was struck by the way that the book closes with a passage in American supremacy. And then in the conclusion, you've got another short passage on the American century with a question mark illustrated by a photograph of President Donald Trump. And the, the, the Trump image, of course, invokes all kinds of themes of nostalgia for American greatness. 
What what kind of argument were you implying when you chose to include his picture? Well, can I first of all say, if you look at the actual very end, after that comes an unpredictable age, then disease and population, and then key changes, none of which are about America or Mr. Trump. So I don't end on Trump. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, I'm just looking here at key changes. Um, you know, I, there are discussion there of Greece, Portugal, Spain, Chile, uh, Iran, the Soviet bloc, China, um, flights to the moon. The United States isn't mentioned at all on disease and population. There's a lot on China, um, on unpredictable age. There's a lot to do with the notion, again, is to do with, um, is to do with America at that point. I suppose what Trump symbolizes is the uncertainty of America. And in particular, what I referred to in the text, um, I, I said the Make America Great uh, Again slogan of Donald Trump was misleading in some respects, but also captured a sense among many Americans of relative decline, if not failure, compared to the situation in the second half of the 20th century. And then I go on from there. In other words, I'm using Trump's image, his rhetoric, and the way it obviously resonates with a lot of Americans in 2016, and indeed with the, the, the voters still in 2020. Um, I, I, I'm suggesting that it re, 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 reflects a presentation in their mind of the late 20th century, which acts as a significant overhang into um, the 21st century. Um, so I think that that is what I was getting at. Um, but, you know, if you go on, I, I, you know, I say this sense looked back to an age of American greatness that in reality had always been more conditional that is, than is appreciated in hindsight. And, you know, I would I would mention Pref uh, President Trump in the same light. I mean, you know, his image of the back of background of growing up years is actually flawed. And as I said, you know, in the 50s, there was fear of communism in the 60s, there's ethnic strain, social division, failure in Vietnam in the 70s, serious economic difficulties um, in the 80s, the downside of Reaganite growth, you know, because obviously it had an upside in the 1990s, social problems, etc. Et so, you know, clearly America was the leading state in the um, non-communist world, but it's misleading as in any account of the late 20th century to present it as having you know, an unparalleled um, sort of sense of, or sorry, an unparalleled reality of dominance. I mean, even if you're looking at when America was perceived and presented as the so-called unipower, which is how it was presented um, in the 1990s, um, clearly no other state had its military or political clout, and yet when it, you know, when the grunts hit the beach at Mogadishu, you know, there was only so much they in Somalia. Um, that's why they had to leave it, or felt they had to leave it in 93. It's why Clinton decided not to intervene in Rwanda in 94. Um, you know, so I think you have to be aware that there were limitations within, um, you know, I think it's very interesting. Um, Saddam Hussein had in many senses been corralled and contained after his heavy defeat in 1991, but he was still in power and he was still a trouble and a threat or perceived as a trouble and a threat. 
um, there was still, from the American perspective, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with the Americans. I'm just simply pointing, if you want to argue about the unique power um, not being dominant, I don't think exactly Iran's position in the 1990s is that which would suggest to you of a unipower. So what I was suggesting by referring to President Trump is that his account, which was rhetorically powerful and that clearly there had been changes which were detrimental in the over the previous 30 years, not least to the living standards of many American workers, etc., etc. You know, Ross Perot's talk of um, talking of jobs out and all the rest of it. There was that strand. All I wanted to do was to put it in, you know, question marks. Mm. Well, Jeremy, you mentioned before the possibility of a successor volume of history of the 21st century. What do you think the dominant themes of the history of the next century or the present century, I should say, uh, the next um, 80 odd years? What do you think the dominant themes of that narrative would be? Well, that would be fascinating. I hope somebody won. Somebody will sign me up to do that. I fear not. I mean, you know, you pro- um, and actually, actually, it's rather interesting for me. I am very because I like to write and I like to think about things and I like to rise to the challenge. Uh, but I am very dependent on publishers being willing to publish me, which is why I like um, readers to purchase my books, not because. I necessarily earn any, and in fact, on these, this particular book, I will earn not a penny more if readers buy it, because I, you know, the, the nature of an illustrated book is that the author is generally paid, as in this case, a flat fee. Um, but I would like people to buy it, partly because I would like them to enjoy the book, partly because I hope they would find it interesting, and thirdly, because I hope it would encourage the publisher to sign me to do something else. Yes, one should be honest. Um, 21st century will hold a host of things. I mean, demographics are important. I wouldn't go as far as saying demographics are destiny. That's a sort of kind of facile remark that he had made. But I would certainly agree that demographics are very important, not just the aggregate uh, situation, which is going on for a rise currently projected about 10.75 billion for the end of the century, but also the marked change between uh, parts of the world with a particularly dramatic growth um, anticipated in Africa and the um, consequences in terms of environmental issues, living standards, political stability, migration crises, etc., etc., etc. Ethics are important. I think the way in which um, societies operate in terms of strain within themselves, I think a lot of the narratives of the 20th century, whether the narratives of the left or the center or the right, and whatever your sympathies are, a lot of those narratives appear less appropriate as societies have changed and have different experiences are more in a way individualistic, whether the individualism is expressed by Chinese people, um, you know, communicating with each other through social media and acting as consumers in a way um, that would have been inconceivable in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, or by more atomistic societies elsewhere, you can decide. So those issues, I think, are big issues. I think there are big issues in terms of the extent to which um, the fallacies of many of the liberal left ideologies of the late 
uh, 20th century, which sort of didn't really adjust to the continued prominence of religion in the world, the continued prominence of nationalism, the continued prominence of democratization, which they attempted to sort of pigeonhole and castigate as populism. Um, I think that, that remains an interesting aspect of where we're going. And it may well be that differing results in differing polities, political communities, help to throw up a dynamic of different forms of, uh, of political as well as ideological confrontation. So I think there's a whole host of interesting issues out there. And then, of course, there's the absolute fascination of the unpredictable, or what I call the nonlinear. I mean, you know, what is going to happen if, for example, our choice uh, have uh, an encounter, a significant encounter with a uh, life form elsewhere in the universe. What would that mean to our system, to our ideologies, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know. Um, the assumption that, of course, it's just going to be a version of today with some changes, I think, is deeply flawed. Hmm. Well, Jeremy, we have taken up a lot of your time today, and I know it's valuable. Um, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment, what we could maybe look forward to reading from you next? Yes. Uh, at the very moment, as of today, I always like two books at once, not literally on the same moment, but at the same time. So generally a different bit on each one each day keeps one's mind alert. Um, so today I am doing part of the politics of Poirot, uh, Agatha Christie. And, and that isn't for a publisher as yet. I haven't got a contract, so if I don't manage to place it, I'll just chuck it free on the web. But I hope like actually to hard copy. And the other one is on strategy from 1792 to 1815. So I don't think there's any danger of overlap between those two books. <laughs> Although in the ABC murders, you will know, since you're well read, that <laughs> Mr. Cust, uh, his middle name is Bonaparte. So there you go. <laughs> he's, he's, he's obviously the baddie. <laughs> no, he's not actually. <laughs> No, he, the bad is be. somebody with the name of Francis. Uh, sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Good. Jeremy, those sound like wonderful projects and no doubt we'll be looking forward to, to, to hearing from you on the New Books Network for, for, for each of those in due course. But for now, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on to the show to no, talk I about this wonderful new book. Really and I actually think the New Books Network has a really important role. And I think that in a way, what is interesting is there are lots and lots of people around the world who read books, but there is also this very large culture now of book groups. I, for example, as a member of a book group. And I think book groups are really interesting. But what they tend not to do is necessarily interrogate or hear from the author not that the, these days the author gets given much role often. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting. I, I would encourage you, if you put me on again, to actually ask me difficult questions, but in particular to ask 
how a book is structured, how it is arranged, what are the mechanics of it, what leads it to go in a certain direction. Those are questions which authors are generally aware of, though many of them don't seem to give too much attention to the matter. Um, um, but and what people often ask me if I'm able to publish so much, and obviously you know, I'd like to think I work very hard, I'm very bright and have lots of interesting ideas. But a key thing is always to try and do what the publishers want. I mean, I think that's an absolute fundamental. <laughs> um, but you see, what I find fascinating about book groups is, you know, apart from chatting around and having some wine and all the rest of it, they don't actually always think about the author other than looking at the text. And the text will only take you so far. So what you're doing is excellent. Or people like yourself who take the time to read the books and to interview authors, and then the network as a whole is, do, is doing a fantastic job. And the other thing I really like about it is it isn't those ridiculous things you see in, in uh, book festivals where, you know, you get ludicrous uh, softball questions. I think it's much, much, you know, sort of, you know, what would you like to do for Christmas kind of thing. Um, you know, tell me what you've always thought your greatest inspiration is. I you know, you've tried to pin me down on Trump. It is a, a question which is reasonable. Why is there uh, there? Because of the image he presented. I so happen to think that image is misleading. But the point is, the very fact that that image exists is a potent one, which about the recollection already of the late 20th century as a kind of golden age. So, Jeremy, one final question before we need to leave today, and, and that is simply, who is your greatest inspiration? I didn't hear the question at all. Sorry, you're cutting out all, all the time. So try again. Uh, who is your greatest inspiration? Who is my greatest inspiration? You raised it. You raised it. Yeah, all right. I once gave a, I once was giving a lecture at Durham in the early, uh, uh, sort of late, no, very early 90s, you know, for, for my big early modern Europe first year course. And, you know, I was knackered. I'd been up writing all night and all the rest of it. And I looked pretty exhausted. I was commuting from Newcastle to Durham. And I said to the students, I said, you know, I hope I'm going to do this well, because I give all my lectures without notes. I said, I hope I'm going to do this without. With I've been up wrestling all night with Clio, and that's why I'm rather exhausted. And one of the students, as quick as a flash, said back to me, I thought your wife's name was Sarah. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was brilliant. Right students. And the interaction between them and the staff is fantastic. It's been lost now. Of course, it's lost in the political correctness we're in. And indeed, just a last idea for you. Idea. I so happen to think that I was fortunate to be educated in an age and to educate in an age of what I call a three-dimensional society to look at the other point of view, where you're encouraged to think of uncertainty, where as a historian you don't think of is unidimensional or having a clear set of a moral standard based on the moment of today, where you use tools such as irony and reflection. All of that is gone. It's been swept away in sort of this current mess this uh, of decolonization and um, political correctness, which is fundamentally a two-dimensional assertion 
of a particular vision of the present as opposed to the richness and complexity of the past. So, in a way, my inspiration is the past because the present is so gloomy in intellectual life and in the universities is increasingly devoid of true meaning. Well, Jeremy, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and we do appreciate your time. Thanks for your time today and do take care. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.